Thank you, Sang, for uh, wonderfully reading uh, the scripture. Not only uh, do you read it well, but you look good doing it. And, uh, <laughs> you know, big sexy that you are. I think uh, I'm thankful for you. You know, the reason I'm saying that is because I, this is what happened. Um, you know, so I, I usually have sermons and ideas of what I'm going to preach literally three, four weeks in advance. And so everything was, is kind of lined up. And so right after I finish one sermon Sunday, immediately Monday through Friday, I'm working on the next one. I'm thinking it's got to keep, it's got to keep moving. And, and I had this sermon already uh, and I was working on it and I, I gave the passage to, to Mina and she gives it to Sang who's going to read it today. And, and it was Saturday night, last night. And I was trying to finish it up. What I do is I have everything written out. And what I do is I read it over and over again, over and over again. And as I kept reading and I kept reading, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this is too long. <laughs> this is going to be bad. This is just like I didn't, uh, you know, I didn't have enough time to boil it down. All the knowledge and all the, 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 the theology of the teaching, I didn't have time to boil it down enough. I needed to think about it, take some more time to, and, and put it in a way that you would get it and you would like it. And so it's, it's 3 in the morning, Saturday. And I'm like, I got to do something else. And then I also thought, wait a minute, you know, there was just a wedding last Friday. And, uh, you know, today is actually we're recognizing new members. And, and so I was thinking, you know what, this, this message may be not even appropriate. And so I scratched it. I'm going to do it next week. And, and what I did at 4 in the morning was I started preparing a new sermon and a little bit more relevant to, I think, what's going on today. So it's 5 in the morning now, and I'm finishing up my sermon, and I'm texting, you know, saying, hey, I'm preaching something, I'm doing something else. Can you do this? Can you read this? And I was like, uh, I don't know, because he's probably stayed up all night practicing reading the scripture. And, uh, you know, now I'm telling him to do something else. And now he's like, no, so I, didn't, I felt bad. And so uh, I'm, I'm thankful that he was able to change it, but I'm changing it up today and uh, it's a lot more simpler it's more, I think more relevant for what we're going to do today and I think it's also important for all of us to be reminded of the topic of the sermon today is called commitment we are talking about membership and we're looking at this passage and uh, you know it's, it's kind of graphic if you think about it and you might be wondering why are we looking at Ezekiel chapter 16 to talk about like membership or commitment and the reason is because uh, it provides for us a window, a, a picture, a graphic one at that, at the nature of God's relationship with, with his people. And so today, since we're going to observe new members in the church, uh, that's what we want to talk about in relationship to the church. And who knows, after this sermon, those of you who are members already, you might want to rethink your membership, right? You might want to think about, you know, what you're committed to. Uh, those of us who, who aren't members, but you're maybe thinking about it, maybe it's, under, it's important to understand what, what membership is and why we need to take membership seriously or the possibility of membership seriously. And here's the thing. In 2016, uh, the New York Times had an opinion article. And the topic of this article, it wasn't politics. It, it wasn't some current social issue. It, it wasn't about technology or finance or anything else otherwise. And it happened to be that year, the most read article in 2016. And do you know what it was about? It was about commitment. Commitment. The, the most read article in the New York Times that year was about commitment, particularly the kind of commitment involved in marriage. In marriage. 
And the author of that article, his name was Alan DeBoten, and he's not a Christian, uh, but he gives a very, I think, realistic, if not even pessimistic opinion of our culture's idea of what commitment is in marriage. And the title of that article, get this, the title of this article is this, quote, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. That was the title of his article, Why You Will Marry the Wrong Person. And, and he opens up this article by saying this, quote, It's one of the things that we are most afraid might happen to us. We go to great lengths to avoid it, and yet we do it all the same. We marry the wrong person, end quote. And so the whole article, his thesis, is that in our current culture, when it comes to marriage and when we see commitment in marriage... It's usually based, at least initially, if not primarily, on the idea of romantic affection. And he's not talking about just the lovey-dovey kind of feelings, but this feeling of compatibility with someone that we feel can make us happy or that I can make them happy, that, that kind of fulfills my needs and I can fulfill her needs. And what he points out is that that seems to be the primary initial drive for uh, why we commit to someone. And it was very different. It was very different. A hundred years ago, the reason people got married was because it was very pragmatic. You know, we need to get married because we've got to have kids, and kids need two parents. And uh, we should be a family because in society, that's how society works. And to be contributing to society, you need families and families to grow. And so we should get married. It, it was much more pra pragmatic, right? But, but now what, what, what DeBotton says is this. He says basically that we've romanticized our commitments in marriage. When realistically, marriage and its commitment at times can be far from being romantic. And I think under his assessment is his view of people in general. He says this, he says, quote, people have a bewildering array of problems that emerge when we try to get close to others. We seem normal only to those who don't know us very well. In a wiser, more self-aware society than our own, a standard question on any early dinner date should be, how crazy are you? And finally, we want to make that nice feeling that we have permanent. And so we think marriage will help us bottle the joy we felt when we thought of proposing that first time. Can you imagine that? I mean, this is what he's saying. What you're really saying is, look, everybody's crazy. So when you meet someone, the first question you should think about is, how crazy are you? And then he says this, quote, we married to make sensations of nice feelings permanent, but we fail to see that there was no connection between those feelings and the institution of marriage. Now, you know, I admit maybe DeBotton's opinions may be somewhat pessimistic, uh, but his opinion is that all people in any relationship, especially married, will eventually find inadequacies that are so great that it will make them ask, did I marry the wrong person? And as a result, divorce is too easy and is too rampant. And I bet you, there may even be some people here, even in our own church, who have asked this question and asking the question now. Did I marry the wrong person? So what was his solution? 
So Debon's solution in his article is this. He says, quote, we need to swap the romantic view of, of, of commitment for a tragic awareness that every human will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us, and we will do the same to them. That's what he says. And there may be no sense of emptiness and completeness, incompleteness as we go through this, but none of that is unusual or grounds for divorce because that's how people are. People are sinners, basically, saying. And so this is his suggestion, a more practical way to find someone to commit to. Choosing whom to commit ourselves to is just this. It's a case of simply identifying which particular variety of suffering we would most likely sacrifice ourselves for. He's basically saying, you want to know who to marry? Just figure out which crazy you're willing to live with. <laughs> That's what he says. Now let's look at the Bible a little bit, and especially in our passage. This idea of people is not new in the scriptures. It, it always said the same thing. But the Bible takes it even one step further. Marriage, that idea of commitment, is frequently used as an image to describe God and his relationship to Israel, his people. And that's what you see here in Ezekiel chapter 16. And when you read the last verse in the passage that was read, God says, I passed by you, I saw you, you were at the age of love, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Right? That's marriage language, right? You see the same language in Ruth, when Ruth and Boaz got married, it's the same language. God's saying, I made my vow to you, Israel, entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. God describes his relationship with Israel and the church like a marriage. He who is the bridegroom, Israel is the bride. But here's the difference. God already knows what kind of spouse he's marrying. That's the whole chapter. He knows her every fault and weakness and sin. He knows that anyone else who looks at Israel, they will say, why? He knows. Israel is described in our passage as someone with a poor family background, someone who was not attractive in, in the eyes of anybody, someone who nobody wanted. In fact, Israel was pictured in this passage as someone who's despised in the eyes of other people. And so if you were to keep reading this chapter, she's someone who's always wayward, always wandering off, always unfaithful. Israel as a nation is described as an unfaithful wife. And the question then you should be asking is this, why? Why would God want to make vows to that? How many times have I heard or have you heard or even said, I would never have gotten married if I knew it was going to be like this. I would have never entered in this relationship if I knew this person like this. Why should God continue to be faithful to Israel, knowing how ready, how unfaithful she is, and how unfaithful she will be? Why should God stay in this relationship with people if she already knows what's going to happen? Because if anyone should be asking, uh, did I marry the wrong person, it should have been God himself. Why not just start over? Get a divorce. Declare irreconcilable differences. You know, Israel, we're not compatible. I'm holy. You're not. And look for someone better. And the answer is clear. It's in verse 8. 
I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. It's because God made a vow. He made a commitment, what we call a covenant commitment. A covenant is a contract between two parties, uh, two people. It's a promise made between two groups. He made a promise to Israel. God, the God of promise, will keep his promise to Israel to be to her, her God, through thick or thin, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, for better and for worse, to be her faithful God. And so this is a radical version of commitment by today's standards. Where a typical spouse, you know, you might reject, you might despise, or even you might hate an unfaithful partner. But God is patient and just, and he remembers his promises to his people, even when they stray, even though by certain standards he knows he married the wrong people, he remains faithful. Now let's be honest, folks. If the Bible calls Israel like that, I don't think we're much better today. I mean, Israel, it, it wasn't just going to church on Saturday or Sunday. It, it was every day. We, we struggled just to get to church sometimes on Sunday uh, or to worship him once a week. You know, forget about trying to be intentionally faithful Monday through Saturday everywhere we go. And yet, God is faithful. Why? Because he made his commitment. His word is bond. This is what the Bible calls covenant commitment, and it's the basis why we view Christian marriage the way we do. It's, that's why it's serious. And the reason why God roots the most important relationship in the world in covenant promise is because the idea of covenant is that they were meant to endure. Tim Keller in his book on marriage, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, he says this, quote, quote, covenants are by nature oriented towards the future. They are not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. God's promises are not idealistic. It's realistic. It assumes you will have rough patches. It assumes you will have difficult moments in your relationship. You know, in our wedding vows, what we say oftentimes is this, do you promise to love him or her for better or for worse? Not, not right now. Nobody says at the day of the wedding, oh, right now, I don't think I could do it. Everyone says, yeah, we're good. But a promise that God makes is a promise to be faithful, not just now, but in the future. For better or for worse. The promise of faithfulness, for better or for worse. And the problem, I think, is this. We always think about better, but we never think about the worse. We never think about or expect how worse it could be. But that's what vows are, covenant promises. Not just to love you now, but to love you later in those hard moments by enduring the inevitable patches of failure in the future. Marriage isn't just some hopeful promise between two consenting adults who are just romantically involved and hope to make it through the next few years. Marriage is a covenant between two adults and God himself. And how does God promise 
faithfulness in the future. Here's the thing. If Debatin's article and his solution is you simply need to choose someone to commit to by identifying which suffering you're willing to sacrifice yourself for. That's what he says, end quote. God's solution is this. He's chosen to endure suffering by sacrificing himself for us on a cross for all, for all of our issues. For Israel's issues, for Israel's weakness, for Israel's unfaithfulness, for her sins, her past sins, her present sins, her future sins, and for our sins. That's his covenant commitment. He didn't just tell us what it means to be faithful. He showed it to us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, the bridegroom who endures suffering to give his life for his bride, the church, Ephesians 5. And on that cross, Jesus teaches us what it means to be committed to the end. It's hard, it's endurance, it's painful, but he does it for love. What it takes to show love to one another is completely self-sacrificial. And he gives grace and he forgives sins through it. Now, what does this have to do with membership? Well, you've heard it said, don't date the church, marry it. And there's a reason for that. Because the Bible calls or talks, when it speaks about church, it refers to it as a covenant community. Joining, is a, joining a church is not the same as joining a club. We're not members of some shared interest or a hobby. Otherwise, you could go somewhere else. We are a covenanted community to God and to one another. We submit to the leaders of the church, Matthew 18. We promise to gather together in worship, Hebrews 10. We bear one another's sorrows and burdens, Galatians 6. We encourage one another, Hebrews 3. We pray for one another, James 5. And we forgive one another, Colossians chapter 3. We give grace, we receive grace, we forgive sins, and we are forgiven. That's a covenant community of God. And then that is what then membership vows mean. The same as they meant for Ezekiel 16, the same as we hear in marriage, membership vows mean that they are covenant promises to God and to the church. Not just now, but for the future. Just like marriage covenant. And just like many marriages, there's that honeymoon stage, right, where everything seems great and wonderful. And in the same way, when you first join a church, oh, people seem friendly. Oh, they're so nice. Oh, the pastor seems, seems really nice. Oh, the sermon seems really great. But just like our relationships, when the honeymoon stage is over, you begin to see a little issue here and there, don't you? A little more clearly. Oh, wait, they're not that nice. Wait a minute, there's too many cliques in this little church. Oh, wait, wait, they're too exclusive. Oh, no, they're, they're too inclusive. And I, think, I think the church is kind of liberal. No, no, I think it's too conservative. Wait, wait a minute. The sermons are kind of long and kind of boring. The praise, well, I thought it was good, but now, you know, it's kind of whatever. The community groups don't meet my needs the way I thought it would. I, I don't seem to connect with anyone. And everyone else seems to be connecting except me. And they all look a little weird. You stick around long enough. That member gossiped about me. That member wronged me. That member said something that I didn't like and was hurtful. And just like our relationships, we are reminded that no one is perfect and no church is perfect. But still, we can't help 
we can't help it. If in our marriages we ever find ourselves asking, did I marry the wrong person? So too in church membership, sometimes we ask, did I join the wrong church? You know the number one people or reason people leave church? According to Christianity Today, it's not because they disagree with teaching. It's not because they couldn't get into their praise time or that the Bible studies are too fluffy. Christians leave their churches for the same reason people leave their marriages. A lack of relational depth and affection, end quote. In other words, we're just not compatible. I tried it out for a year, but eh, it's not compatible. we got irreconcilable differences. I'm out. We leave because of community. Now, community is important. It's, it's very important. It's essential, right? But as important as it is, if that's the reason that you are going to ignore your vows and just leave, then I want you to ask, where's your covenant promise? Because it's covenant before community. It's covenant before community. Because just like marriage covenants, membership covenants, to borrow Keller words, Keller's words, is this. It's not a declaration of present love, but a mutually binding promise of future love. You trust in God to endure what God already knows the church is like. When the honeymoon stage is over and the rough patches of relationships start coming in, you remember God's faithfulness to the church and you remember your promises to him and then your promises to your church. For richer, for poor, sickness and health and for better or for worse. You are together. The wrong people are together because of the church. Because of what God has done and his love and faithfulness to us. You feel incompatible? Of course you do. How can it be otherwise when you're brought together with people who are very opposite of you? But this is what this non-Christian debatant says. And it's very insightful. He says, quote, compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be a precondition. Compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be a precondition of love. Samuel Madi, a Christian author, says similarly, he says this, quote, The world argues affection is prerequisite to commitment, but the biblical picture is quite the opposite. Commitment and service create affection. Commitment and service create affection. Community is important. Relationships are important. But we don't let people or relation issues be the reason for leaving the church. Because people aren't the ultimate reason you came here in the first place. They shouldn't be. But let your covenant commitment precede everything else. Look at the cross. Learn to endure. Learn to Experience grace. Show grace and forgiveness. Let your faith work itself out where it is in the community that you are in right now. How? By seeking to love those around you. By serving, by giving, by praying, by encouraging. And that's how covenant promises build community. 
If you're always asking, what am I going to get out of this? What am I getting out of this? Maybe you're a consumerist. Well, I'm not getting what I want here, so I'll just go on to the next door. And you're not a covenant member. The question we should be asking ourselves is this. What are we giving? Not what am I getting. What am I doing? Not what are, what are they doing? Where am I serving? Where are my covenant vows, the promises I've made, being worked out? Ask yourself, are you making friends or are you making enemies? It's work to make friends. It's easy to make enemies. And on the flip side, here's the thing. There might be legitimate reasons you have to leave a church, but there's a right way to do that. But, and it's, there's always going to be sadness. No matter what reason, if anyone leaves that community, there's going to be some sadness. But as a congregation that's weak and flawed and even small, here's the thing. On our side, we have a responsibility to those who might feel this way. To do everything that we can as the church to include, to involve, to encourage those who might feel out of touch or disconnected or even estranged. We have a part too. To be patient, that if we can't enjoy their relationship, at least Ephesians 4, bear with one another with humility, gentleness, and love. That's on us as a community and church. A community of sometimes the wrong people brought together, but for the right reasons, because of God's faithful covenant community or promise to you. Our faithful commitment and covenant commitment to him is in response to that as a church. I'll be very honest with you, um, especially over the past seven years or so, 10 years, I don't know, but my love for the church ebbs and flows. Oh, I love my church. I love them. They're, they're, they're so weird. <laughs> you know, they're, they're just different. I've, I spoke at a lot of churches. I've, I've been I've to other churches, and, and I gotta say, yeah, yeah, they're weird. They're different. It's a little weird mix. And there are days where like, God, what is wrong with my church? What's wrong with them? Like, what, 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 are they, what are they doing? What are they thinking? Like, why are they doing this? What, what is wrong with them? I, I, you know, there's got to be someone better. I, I go back and forth, to be honest. But the answer here isn't just, well, I just need to find a better fit. Because every congregation will find a way to get under our skin. Every church will find a way to frustrate us and even wound us. And we will do the same to them. And this is how I think it ends. One Christian author writes it this way. Quote, our relationships will ebb and flow, as will our affection for the church. But the solution is not always looking for a better fit. Instead, we renew our passion and reignite our sense of belonging by holding ourselves to our membership covenant. Sacred promises that bind even the wrong people together. I think what he means is this. When you've been married for someone for such a long time, the romantic feelings aren't the same as it was when you first met. You've got to create the romance. You've got to put effort into that relationship and reignite the love that God has 
in store for us. So as we continue in our membership and as we recognize and hear our membership vows, as we recognize new members, those of us who are our members, be reminded again of what that means for us. Those of us who are thinking about membership, consider how important that is uh, before you go. Okay? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your word.